Well, good morning, everyone. As Clark said, again, welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. Welcome to 11 o'clock service. So excited that you're here because it is, after all, the best service because you're in it, right? Excellent. Uh, if I haven't had the opportunity to uh, uh, introduce myself to you yet or meet you or hear your story, just let me do that for a second. Um, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. Specifically, I oversee creative arts ministry, which has everything to do with music, audio, visual, lighting, video, etc. I'm not really good at all those things, but I have an awesome team of people that I work with and oversee that are good at all those things, so that's awesome. And then I also, <clears throat> excuse me, oversee our Know It Ministries, so that would be the equivalent of what we would call maybe biblical education in the local church. So we're talking about classes, other resources that equip people to follow Jesus and to live out their faith, as well as things like E4 studies. Man, if you've never checked out an E4 study, you've got to go online to our website and do that. So that's a little about me. And uh, before we dive in today and continue this series, I just want to say that uh, if I have never, again, if I've never met you and we've never had a chance to interact, please do me a favor in the cafe following the service today. Just tap me on the shoulder. Please introduce yourself to me. It, it really is a, a privilege that I get to be able to kind of hear your story and uh, see what God is doing in your life, how you got here to grace, even if it's just for today, because uh, it's just an awesome opportunity for me to be able to uh, kind of see all the people and the resources that <clears throat> God is bringing together here at our campus and just to see the awesome things that he's doing. It's one way to celebrate that. So please do that and avail yourself of that opportunity if you can after service. So um, as many of you know, we have been in a series for the past two weeks uh, that we have been calling GC3, A Vision for the Great Life. And so as our team was starting to prepare for some of these conversations, we really, essentially we began with a very simple, but what I think is a very profound question as we look to kind of develop or build <clears throat> this series. And that question was this, what is the great life? So what does it mean to not just live life, but to live a great kind of life? You see, my guess is, if I know you, maybe even a little bit, my guess is that uh, none of us, uh, when we start to think about uh, the end of our lives and we start to think about all that we've accomplished, and as we look back at that moment in time that we would want to say, man, the thing that really characterized my life, the one thing that I could say about my life was that it was straight up average, Right? Or I doubt any of you woke up this morning and you said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to channel every single one of my spiritual, <clears throat> emotional, physical, and mental resources to be mediocre today. Now, I highly doubt that any of us woke up with that. And so what we've been trying to do in this series is dig into God's perspective, and maybe we could even better say his prescription for the great life. Like, what does God have to say the great life is how we can grab a hold of it, and what that's really all about. And listen, listen up here, and how we might be able to grab a hold of that life right here, right now, today. So not, I'll do everything that God wants me to do, and then someday, pie in the sky, like when I get to heaven after I die. I just rhymed. That's the first time I've done that. Um, <clears throat> when I get to heaven, that one day I'll experience the great life. But no, what would it look like to access and tap into God's great life that he wants for us right here and right now. So this is basically where GC3 comes in. GC3 stands for these three things. The great commandment in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, love God, love people. The great commission in Matthew 28, and the great comforter, the concept of the personhood or the personality of the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. 
And so last week, uh, Clark did an awesome job of walking us through the great commandment in Matthew 22. Again, loving God, loving people, discovering that that's the secret sauce of the great life. And so today, we are going to dive into the great commission in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. So if you brought your Bibles, I want to encourage you to get those out right now. If you got it on your device, get your phone or your iPad or whatever it is out Um, And we are going to make our way together to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, Let me just say that if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. We've got you covered. The text is going to be up on the screens behind me. And we have some black Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And in those black Bibles, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, will be on page 698 in those Bibles. So you can access it there as well. And the last thing I'll say before we start making a movement toward the passage is that if you don't have a Bible to call your own, just go ahead and take one of those black Bibles under the seats in front of you. Just consider it our way of saying thank you for being here and checking out what's going on at Grace Church. We want to get a Bible into your hands, so thanks for that. Uh, As we make our way there, I want to do something first before we dig into the passage. I want to examine maybe our approach a little bit to this passage uh, before we we dig in. Uh, You see... If, uh, if you've been a, a Christ follower, if you're a Christ follower, or you've been around the Medina East campus for any length of time, or I would actually also say that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, like you don't profess that, but you've, uh, you've been around uh, people who claim to be followers of Jesus, or you've been around the church at any given point in time, my guess is that there are a lot of us in this room that have uh, heard the stuff of Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, plenty of times before. Now, again, if you have been a part of the Medina East Campus for any length of time, you probably have heard this a lot because our campus stakes a lot of the claims of our existence and what we're all about and what we're shooting for on passages like Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now, so much so that there are many of you in this room that you might even have this passage, like you've heard it so many times that you might just have this passage straight up memorized. Like you could recite this thing or the content of this passage in your sleep. Now, while that is a great thing, it's a phenomenal thing, it does have the potential to create some problems for us as we look to examine what Jesus is saying here in this passage and how it relates to the great life that God wants to have us or see us have access to. All right, so let me give you you an example of why I think this is the case. So um, back this past January, at the turn of the year, my wife and I had decided that we had put on uh, one too many pounds over the holidays. It's the ham, right? It's the ham and the pie. That's what does it. And so we had decided we were going to leverage the, the New Year's resolution time period to kind of go on a, uh, like a food reset. We were going to get our diet straight. Um, and actually, right now what I'm going to do, scratch the last two sentences from the record. I'm going to start over. So, so last January, I decided that I had put on one too many pounds over the holidays And my wife, in a loving act of solidarity and sacrifice, she decided that she was going to join me on this diet. (laughs) And so so we asked a couple of our health nut friends, and you know who you are if you're a health nut, just get over it, right? Uh, So we asked a couple of our health nut friends, and uh, what should we do? And so we we wound up landing on this diet that's called, any of you ever heard of it, Whole30? Anybody? Okay, so, and listen, if you're a Whole30 fanatic, I know it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle, just, just come on, it's, it's a diet, it's a diet. So, um, we decided to go on this thing Whole30, and, and if you've never heard of Whole30, essentially, or in a nutshell, this is what Whole30 is. Whole30 uh, says that you remove <clears throat> any and all artificial sugars from your diet entirely for 30 days. 
You also remove things like dairy products and anything else that's like synthetic or heavily processed food. So you're kind of getting back to the organic food that supposedly our bodies are supposed to intake. And so if you're wondering actually what you can eat on Whole30, the answer to that is almonds and cat food. <laughs> that's pretty much it. So for 30 days you're eating almonds and cat food. And listen, this is why some people, if you ever encounter them, if they've been on Whole30 and they've struggled, this is why some people refer to it as Hell30. And then some other people, they use more foul language and they refer to it as whole. Surely you don't think that I would say that from the stage. All right, mental note, never do a swear word joke from the stage again. Okay, excellent. So now I, I struggle, I'll, ad I'll admit it. Whole30 was a challenge for me. And I think it was, it was challenging on a number of levels, but it was no more challenging um, than it was on my Dr. Pepper addiction. You see, prior to Whole30, I could, guys, I could pound like six or seven Dr. Peppers in one sitting, easy, right? And, and the thing is, when you go to restaurants, they make it easy to do. It's like when you're sitting, talking with your friends, this whole complimentary refill thing, yeah, I know what you're doing. Like, I'm talking to my friends, and slowly but surely, my server's just throwing me another DP, throwing me another Dr. Pepper, such that by the time I realize it, like I've got seven empty glasses of what were once filled with Dr. Pepper right in front of me. And so here's the thing, um, as I think, as I thought about my Dr. Pepper addiction, I realized that the sugar in Dr. Pepper, now there's a lot of it, if you didn't know, but the sugar in Dr. Pepper, like for me, prior to Whole30, just a part of the, part of the experience, right? It's, you, you taste the sugar on your tongue, it's like, oh yeah, that's Dr. Pepper, it's mundane, it's normal, I'm a Dr. Pepper junkie, it's okay. Now here's the thing, I went on Whole30, and, and there was that moment in time where I cracked open my first post-Whole30 can of Dr. Pepper, and I remember it distinctly. It's vivid in my mind. I was pouring it into this ice-filled glass, being mesmerized by the carbonated bubbles that spoke of heaven on earth. And I just remember grabbing a hold of that glass and taking my first sip and being greeted with, with what was nothing short of a nuclear explosion of sugar on my tongue. Now, guys... There is a lot of sugar, newsflash, there's a lot of sugar in Dr. Pepper, a lot. But the funny thing is, you don't need to read the label on the Dr. Pepper can to know that that's true. If you haven't been desensitized to sugar, you will be aware of the kind of nuclear explosion, the content of sugar that's in Dr. Pepper. And here's how this connects. See, for many of us, when we go to a passage like Matthew 28, we've heard this so many times before, that it almost becomes a mundane part of our everyday experience when we walk into a passage. In effect, some of us may be desensitized to all the profound implications that are going to be found here. And so here's what I'm gonna ask you to do, all right? To the best of your ability, to the best of our ability together, what I want you to do is I want you to put on your whole 30 hat for a second this morning. What I want you to do is to the best of your ability, cleanse your palate, of everything you think you know and understand about this passage, and I almost guarantee you, you will be greeted with a certifiable nuclear explosion of significance about the words that Jesus is saying here and the implications those words have for this great life that we've been talking about. Okay? Is that okay? Can we do that? Audience participation is accepted. It's approved. Can we do that? All right. That's good. Let's do this together. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. 
When they saw him, they worshiped him, but interestingly, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, so there is a lot going on in this passage. We will not have time to dig to the depth that we could in going here today. But here's, here's going to be our approach. Our approach, we're just going to take it verse by verse, okay? And the first two verses kind of clump together and set the stage for us, okay? So we're told in the first two verses that there's these 11 disciples, these followers of Jesus who walked around and learned from him for about three and a half to four years when he was ministering in what is now modern-day Palestine in this area of Galilee. So we're told that these 11 disciples went to Galilee, Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So prior to this, uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and two women are going to uh, the tomb where they think Jesus is going to be, and as they go to the tomb, they not only notice that it's empty, but Jesus greets these two women there, and they, basically the only instructions he gives them is, hey, listen, go tell these 11 guys who followed me around for the last three and a half to four years, I want to meet them on this certain mountain in Galilee. Go tell these guys. And presumably, this is because Jesus is going to tell them something that's going to be of massive or monumental importance. Like he's going to give them the marching orders, the next steps, and what it would look like to follow him. So these 11 disciples, we are told, they hear from these women and they go to this mountain in Galilee. And when they see Jesus, some of these guys, it starts to click immediately. Oh man, he's here, he's alive. And, and the, the mentality is like, What's he going to say next? What instruction is he going to give us? What command is he going to give us? How are we going to work this plan out that Jesus has set up for us? Maybe finally Jesus will tell us how he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and we can finally be free from their oppressive clutches. So some of these guys immediately recognize that this is Jesus and they're getting excited so they do the thing that you're supposed to do. They worship him. They give him the honor and the reverence that he deserves. They bow down to him and honor him because imagine that, right? You're excited. What's he going to say next? What's he going to tell us to do? Now, what's interesting to me is that Matthew acknowledges, though, here that some of these 11 guys, we don't know how many, some of them doubted, which is fascinating. We're not told exactly why these guys doubted. We're just told that they did. But I think this is a very important thing that this tells us especially in terms of Matthew, who is writing this gospel, who would have, by the way, been one of these 11 guys who met Jesus on the mountain. I think what this tells us is that everything that we're going to get from here on out is a very accurate and true portrayal of what Jesus really said on the mountain. Because think about it. If you were Matthew and you were just trying to develop like propaganda literature to claim Jesus had risen from the dead for whatever agenda that you had with that, and when he actually didn't, the last thing that you would do is acknowledged that some of Jesus' own followers who followed him for three and a half to four years doubted or were skeptical at this. So what we're going to get here in the next couple verses is something that we can bank on like this actually happened. Moving on into verse 18 then. So these guys are, some of them are worshiping Jesus, some of them doubt, and then Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So interesting here that Jesus does not lead with a command. He doesn't immediately tell them what to do. He instead first leads with a statement about who he is. And so we get the impression 
that this is a necessary statement that Jesus has to make, that whatever Jesus is going to tell them to do from here on out stands or falls on the statement or the claim that he makes here. And, and the really important word here that we need to understand to kind of grapple with what Jesus is really claiming here is this word authority. Now, this word authority is, is important, and actually our English, if you were to go to an English dictionary and just look up the definition of authority, it would give you a pretty accurate portrayal or portrait of what Jesus is claiming here. See, if you go to an English dictionary, this is what the definition for authority is. It is the power to determine or otherwise settle issues or disputes. Now, get this. The right to control, to command, or to determine. The right to control, to command, or to determine. What Jesus is saying here first is that, guys, what I'm about to tell you stands or falls on this claim. And what Jesus is claiming is that, hey, guys, if you want to, disciples, if you want to have access to the kind of life that, that God offers you, that you ought to listen to what I have to say and you ought to be fully obedient to what I'm commanding you. In effect, Jesus is saying to these 11 disciples, guys, I have the authority and the power to determine how you should live your life life. That's the appeal to authority that Jesus is making here. And so this is interesting. So for us who are a little bit of outsiders looking in when we come to the passage, like this could easily rub us the wrong way, couldn't it? Well, wait a minute. Who, what gives this guy the right to make that kind of claim? To literally tell other people how they should run their life and what they should do. Now, maybe when we come to this, we, we initially recoil there because there's this cultural condition that we have of rugged individualism where everybody's their own person and decides what to do. But I think that might play into it in our reaction to Jesus' claim of authority here. But I think there's actually something that runs a little bit deeper that's in every one of us. You see, guys, I think I know something about you because I know something about me. And what is it that every time someone issues a command or tells me what to do, and I think this is true or at least can be true of you, what is it about this immediate impulse that we often have of defiance to that command, of sheer straight up rebellion? It's, it's almost like the words can't come out fast enough when we get a command issued to us, it's like, a, it's like a famished tiger that's just gotten loosed out of a cage. Like, you can't tell me what to do. Who do you think you are? Listen, I have the right and the privilege to determine what my life should be about and how I'm going to get there with all the goals and the aims that come with that definition. Jesus, what would give you the right to tell me that kind of thing to do with my life? And so I think it's easy for us to see this immediate reaction, this impulse that we have. It's easy to see in our two-year-old children, isn't it? <laughs> the, a simple command, right? Pick up your toy. Turns into a break dance on the floor and the child screaming at the top of their lungs right in the middle of Target. Pick up your toy. Put that back on the shelf. We could see it in our two-year-old children. We could even see it in our 12-year-old children. That impulse, like, tell me what to do. But rarely do we see that that same streak still exists in every one of us. 
Like if we're honest with ourselves, there's that impulse, there's that, like, you can't tell me what to do. How dare you try to tell me how I should live my life? You see, two-year-olds don't have the social filters that we do, but we still struggle with the same things. And so my question is, what is it exactly about a command that does this to us? How does it instantaneously seem to push the trigger of defiance and rebellion inside of us? I think there are a number of answers, and the Bible also has a number of answers, but if you were to trace the story of humanity all the way throughout the Bible, and you go all the way back to the origins of human beings, and especially Genesis chapter 3, where everything goes wrong, you will quickly discover that the source of every calamity, every catastrophe, every piece of dysfunction and despair and brokenness finds its origins when the original human couple, Adam and Eve, decide that God's rules for their lives are not good, they're not what's best, and that that original human couple decides that they can't trust that God is out for their good, so they start to define things on their own. And this, it's in that defiance where this thing called sin comes into, a, into the world. It's the refusal to trust that whatever God has for us is good and is for our flourishing and for our benefit. You see, I think when you trace that story, you look at the story of Adam and Eve and the first sin. Sin comes into the world because the original human couple bought into something that I like to call was the illusion of autonomy. The illusion of autonomy. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to our definition board. Autonomy. Autonomy says this. Autonomy is the attitude that says that I am able to define what is good and right on my own and to determine my own destiny in alignment with that definition of good and right. And don't miss this part, especially apart from God's input on the matter. Autonomy, literally, guys, it, we, we get two words from, we borrow two words from another language to put this word together. Two words, auto, which means self, and namas, which means law. Literally, just put those together and you get it. Autonomy is self-law. I make the rules. I determine what is best. No one else can tell me how to run my life, especially God. And at the end of the day, when you really dig into autonomy, autonomy says this, and we tell ourselves this all the time, that basically, I'm my own God. And I make my own rules. <clears throat> the only rules that I will bow down to are mine and my own. It says, I have and am the only authority that is necessary in my life. And guys, do you see that this is precisely where those violent reactions come from when we're issued a command like the one that Jesus is about to issue and when he makes the claim that he claims? Why? Well, because it's the will of two gods, the perceived will of two gods clashing together. The unstoppable force that meets the immovable object. Such that when we arrive at this passage and we see Jesus making that kind of claim to authority, we're gonna initially buck that claim. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't back down from the claim when we come to the passage. He doesn't merely say that he has all authority, meaning I have uh, the ability to determine and tell you what you should do with your life. He doesn't back down. He amps up with what's around this word authority in the passage or in this verse. Look, first he says all authority. And in this particular context, with the usage of this word, all means all. 
meaning there's no remainder or leftover authority that we might be able to cling to to get along with Jesus that, oh, Jesus, you can, you can rule and reign and dictate to other people what they should do over here, and maybe I can find a small corner of the world where I can run my own show. All says there's no leftovers. Jesus has it all. He knows what the great life looks like and what it looks like and what it should be about. And then he amps it up even further by using this phrase, in heaven and on earth. Now, Jesus' disciples, they would have known that this was a figure of speech that he was using to where um, you refer to two radical extremes as a means to reference the entire whole of the thing that you're talking about. So if someone were to ask, well, okay, Jesus, you say you have all authority, but where exactly is the sphere of that authority located? Like, where are the borders? Where are the boundaries? Maybe I could live outside of that and run my own show somewhere. Well, Jesus in this is basically answering, well... There is not a star in the sky. There is not an atom on the face of the earth. There's not a grain of sand. There is not a microbe that doesn't fall under my universal, unequivocal, supreme lordship over everything. And as we look at this passage, that's just a shocking claim, straight up, flat out shocking claim. And, and initially, you think that it's just like, an appeal to arrogance. Like, this guy is the most arrogant person on the face of the planet. I mean, this is arrogance on steroids with a few human growth hormones injected in it for good measure. Like, what gives this guy the right to claim these things? And here's the thing, that reaction is completely legitimate. But it would have been completely legitimate two chapters ago in the Gospel of Matthew. You see, two chapters ago, if Jesus is running around claiming this, there would be no reason to think that this is anything less than supreme arrogance. Two chapters ago, you might have asked, well, about Jesus, well, is he a great teacher? And you'd have been like, two chapters ago? Sure, absolutely. He's got a lot of good things to say. Does he run my life? No, he doesn't need to. I run my life. But does he teach a lot of good things that I can use? Well, sure, absolutely. Jesus is like the golden corral of buffet, of life hacks, right? Just pick a little mac and cheese, pick a little broccoli, and I'm good. You can use that, but universal Lord over everything? Nah, come on. Two chapters ago, if you would have uh, asked, well, is Jesus a, uh, a miracle worker? You'd be like, well, sure. I mean, if you believe in that sort of thing with our modern scientific minds, it probably didn't happen, but, oh, but sure, you know, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just concede that, and yeah, he's a great miracle worker, for sure. He's healing people, exercising demons, fine. Two chapters ago, if you would have asked, well, is Jesus a controversial political figure? Absolutely. Like the reason he goes to the cross, right, is because he ticked off a bunch of Jewish religious leaders and the Roman government. But risen, resurrected Lord, with all authority in heaven and on earth, to tell me what to do with my life? Come on, man. Man, that's just, that's just ridiculous. And again, all that would have been true two chapters ago. But you see, the context of Matthew 28 is massive here. Because at the beginning of Matthew 28, something has happened that changes the whole ballgame. Jesus has been risen from the dead. Now, the resurrection means a lot. It has a slew of implications that we don't have time to talk about here, but there are at least two implications of the resurrection that matter for how we understand Jesus' claim in this passage. First, guys, the resurrection is God the Father's validation that everything Jesus said his death on the cross would accomplish actually accomplished it. 
that when Jesus goes to the cross, he promises forgiveness of sins. He promises a renewed, reconciled, and restored relationship with the God of the universe, a kind of relationship of love and care and affection that God originally designed when he created the whole thing in the first place. Jesus promises that his death on the cross secured that renewed relationship. And God the Father in the resurrection said he was obedient He was faithful to follow through on my plan to give salvation and that restored relationship to everybody. Therefore, he's gonna get a new life and that is the validation that he did everything that I told him to do and did it effectively. That without the resurrection, the cross is just another self-proclaimed Messiah who died at the hands of the Roman Empire. But with the resurrection, it's the proof that everything Jesus claimed to do actually happened and that a life with God is possible such that the resurrection says that Jesus is the gateway into the great life that God wants for us. And he's not only the gateway, he's also the example of what that life looks like. Such that if you want to come to a salvation relationship with God as it was always intended, Jesus is like, or the resurrection says, the way to get into that life, the gateway is Jesus himself. And the way you live that life is by patterning your life after his. The resurrection says this, but the resurrection also says something else. And don't, please don't miss this. The resurrection says that the same massive, like awe-inspiring, creative power and authority that God himself leveraged at the beginning of creation when he spoke everything into existence, that same power and authority to bring life out of nothing has now officially been handed over to Jesus, to this man, Jesus, in the resurrection. That when God spoke the world into existence and gave everything the breath of life, he's saying that that same authority to call the shots and to show how life should be lived in conjunction with the good world that God created has been handed over to Jesus. Jesus is running the show such that everyone ought to acknowledge his universal lordship over everything. Now, now check this out, because that's a, that's a crazy thing to even think about, like to wrap your mind around, right? But I would argue that that is not the craziest thing that happens here in this passage. You move on to verse 19, we get this key little word, therefore. So Jesus has been handed over this awesome power and authority to call the shots in conjunction with the world as God originally intended as he made it. What is the first thing that Jesus does upon officially receiving that power and authority? You see this? Jesus hands that same power and authority over to 11 goofballs. Guys, the same power that brought the world into existence and made it teeming with life, handed over to Jesus instantly handed over to 11 disciples. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm looking at it that way, if I'm one of those disciples on that mountain, this is my reaction. Well, Jesus, oh shucks, thanks and all, but um, that's way too much responsibility. That is way too much weight and pressure. Jesus, again, I appreciate it, but have you seen my resume as a human being? 
Jesus, I have example after example after example in my life where I have failed to live up to minor issues of responsibility. Jesus, I've failed so many times. How would you expect me to carry all that weight and pressure? And I think for most of us, we can even think in our minds right now, they're coming to our minds all the times where we've blown it. I, the one that comes into my mind is, is when I was 15 years old, um, I was out playing basketball one day, and my next-door neighbor uh, approached me, and he said, hey, Seth, I have a question for you. Now, this next-door neighbor, he was uh, impeccable with his lawn, okay? So he would fertilize it, he'd cut it really well, he'd landscape. The foliage around his house was nothing short of awe-inspiring. And so he comes over to me, he's like, I got a question, sure, fire away, man. He's like, listen, my, my family uh, is going on vacation for 11 days, and uh, what, what I'd, I'd like to do is I'd like to see if you would be able to mow my lawn while I'm gone. And I, and I thought, okay, yeah, I, I guess I could do that. And then he told me how much he was going to pay me. And I thought, you're on, man. Got it. Done. Consider it done. Check. Right? And so he said, that's great. He was so kind about it. He said, thank you very much. He said, if I could just please ask you two things in mowing the lawn, like basically two rules. Number one is um, just make sure you do a thorough job. Right? Make sure you do a thorough job. And number two is, what I'd like you to do, if at all possible, is cut it twice within the 11-day period. So cut the thing twice and just do a thorough job. I'm like, you got it, man. You got it. And so like any good red-blooded American teenager, guys, I spent the, the next 11 days playing more video games than I ever have in an 11-day stretch. And when I finally got the... Uh, the unction, I guess, to, uh, to go mow the lawn. I thought, all right, okay, I'll go, I'll go mow this guy's lawn. That unction came the night before they were supposed to come back from vacation. So <clears throat> I mow the lawn, and it took me about 15 minutes. It was great. It was glorious. Whereas for this guy, it used to take him over an hour. So I blew through this thing in 15 minutes, and then I just distinctly remember um, marching the mower back to uh, my dad's shed, and I-, I looked behind me, and just sheer panic and terror took over because rain clouds were coming in, and when I look back at this guy's grass, there were just clumps of grass everywhere, everywhere. And when I looked back, you could tell every single cut that I had made because on the outer edges of all the cuts were these thin layers of high grass because I had failed to overlap the cuts properly. I mean, you could have run a track meet on this guy's lawn and every runner would have known exactly what lane they were supposed to be in. But guys, I'm sure you have your stories. That's, that's mine, and we've got plenty of them. But these are the things that I think start to come into our minds when we think about the great weight of responsibility that accompanies what Jesus is doing here in this passage with those who would follow him. That's the kind of stuff I think about. Because it seems to me that in this passage, to some degree, Jesus is saying the success or failure of God's plan of salvation, of getting this message out about a renewed relationship with a loving God to the ends of the earth, to the, to the wider world, to some degree, again, rests entirely on these guys' shoulders. And to top it off, you get the distinct impression that anyone who would claim to be a follower of Jesus, those of us who are followers of Jesus included, that that, that responsibility falls on our shoulders as well. Look at what these guys are supposed to do, right? 
This is what Jesus is asking them to do. He's asking them to go. Get out of here. Go do something. Go spread this message. He's telling them to make disciples, which essentially would be make learners or followers of me. Tell other people about me and inform them of what a life following me looks like, what the, what the great life is supposed to look like. They're to baptize. Now, baptism is simply a symbol that Jesus instituted where a person who goes under the water is identifying with Jesus in his death that Jesus' death was for them and that they've received this forgiveness of sins that he offers. And that when the person comes out of the water, it's symbolizing the new life that they've been raised to in union or being united with Christ. Baptism is essentially this declaration that someone makes that the rest of their life is going to be characterized as being under the lordship of Jesus. That the rest of their life, as a person processes through whatever circumstances they're going through, whatever the decisions that they have to make are being made, that they're going to honor Jesus in those decisions and process through those things in such a way that, that they would do what Jesus would do in their life if he were living their life. Big deal. Like, they are to not only baptize people, but to communicate what all that means. These guys are also to teach other people to obey. So this is instructing people on who is God? What is he like? What does it mean? What does this relationship with Jesus look like? What have we been brought into? Who are you? What's your identity? Where is the world going? Where is God taking this? And so when we think about all the things that need to happen in order for the success of the plan of God to reach everyone with the message of his salvation, we're like, Jesus, I can't even cut my neighbor's lawn. What makes you think that I can own up and measure up to everything that you're asking me to do. And I think we go this route because we think obedience is like a set of rules, or we think that Jesus is asking us to do so many things that the weight and the pressure of those things becomes too much for us. See, we look at the lens of obedience like this. We think that Jesus has commanded us to pray, right? Sure, he's commanded us to pray. Oh, I don't pray. Oh, I need to pray. My prayer life is anemic. Got to get on that. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll pull up my bootstraps, I'll buckle down a little bit more, and I'll find a time every day to pray. Oh, oh that's right. I have family that I'm responsible to. Doesn't God command me to be the leader as a husband, at least for me, of my family? Okay, got to figure that one out. And that's right, I work too. Doesn't God have me specifically in my workplace for a reason to be a light, to share that message of salvation? All right, so I gotta find a way to connect. Oh, that's right. I have to evangelize too. I have to share the story. And part of that's loving my name. That's right. I have people that are around me that need to hear the message of Jesus. I need to read the Bible too. I also need to study the Bible as if those things are different, right? I, that's right. I'm being told constantly that I should serve in the church and I need to get, I need to get in biblical community I need to get into a life group to share this life with, oh, that's right, I need to think about my finances and being generous and what is God calling me to there? Oh, there's a second column. I've got physical resources, like I've got a house and a car. Are those just randomly in my possession for no good reason? Does God want to do something? Oh, that's right. I want every little girl on my daughter's soccer team to come to know Jesus. I've got to do that too. I've got to disciple another person. I've got to look at one other person and invest in them over a season for the purposes of them growing to become more Christ-like, for the purposes of their spiritual growth. And oh, that's right, I need to learn how to rest too. Jesus commands me I should rest and I should memorize more scripture as though that's different from reading and studying the Bible. Then I've got relatives 
an extended family. I've got to serve the less fortunate. Other, you're thinking of them all to the point where these stack up and they stack up and they stack up and then we respond, Jesus, just stop telling me what to do. And for some of us, we go even further and we get to this place where like, well, if a relationship with God is contingent upon me doing all these things and being perfect, man, forget it. I don't want to serve that kind of God. I don't want to even acknowledge that that kind of God exists. And so when we're confronted with that, we're like, Jesus, just stop. I can't do this. I not only fail so many times in the past, the prospect of relating with you like that, no thanks. And here's the deal. If that's you, you are not alone. Like, I feel I'm right there with you. When I'm viewing life through this lens, which sadly occurs all too often, like this past Friday, there was an instance in my life where I realized I was viewing my life through the lens of trying to achieve these things and getting them into a perfect balance, and I just realized, oh man, it's too much. If that's you, I get it. And let me offer to you what I think is a life vest that's found in Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20. You see, there are four verbs that occur in these two verses. Four verbs. You've got go, make disciples is one word in the original language, one verb, baptizing, and teaching them to obey would have been one verbal concept. So four verbs. Out of those four, four verbs, only one is a command. Only one. The rest of the verbs are participles. Now I know that every single person in this room is fully aware of the distinction between an imperative and a participle. I know this. You guys are smart. I'm, I'm dealing with the A plus students here at the 11 o'clock service. Like you guys are AP level, even if you're homeschooled. It's okay. But just for the sake of being thorough, right, we know this, I know you're annoyed with me, but just for the sake of being thorough, let's, let's fully outline the distinction between the two, all right? So an imperative. An imperative is simply a command. It's something or someone telling you what to do. Easy, right? A participle, on the other hand, is an action or a verb that takes place while a command is being obeyed. Sometimes they have to take place just prior to in order for the command to be obeyed, but most of the time, participles are those actions that accompany being obedient to a command. Some participles are what they call, they being scholars, participles of attendant circumstance. And what this means is that something has to happen before an imperative for that imperative to be accomplished. Again, I know you know this already, but let me give you an example. So let's just say my imperative to you, my command is watch the Indians game, okay? A participle of attendant circumstance would be something that you have to do prior to in order to obey that command. So this would be, these participles are often ing verbs, okay? So you have to be sitting on the sofa, grabbing the remote, turning on the TV, flipping to the correct channel in order to obey my command. Just ha it happens logically prior in order to obey the command. 
Other participles are called participles of means. So these participles are ING-like words that are actions that describe what happens when an imperative is truly being followed. So let's go back to our Indians game, for example. Let's just say you decided to obey my command in a participle of attendant circumstance by driving down to downtown Cleveland, getting a ticket, and sitting in a seat. A participle of means is you buying nachos and a pop and a hot dog and cotton candy for your kids. You get the idea, right? You spend a lot of money in an Indians game. But a participle of means is you're buying hot dogs. You're interacting with the people around you about the game. You are standing up and you are cheering when your favorite player plates two runs with that RBI double he just hit. Okay, so wh why does this matter? Why am I telling you this? Well, again, you go back to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now, you would think when you encounter these two verses, you would think that the one command, the one imperative is go. Therefore, go. That's how it reads. So we would think that Jesus is telling his disciples that you need to get off the mountain, go travel over a big body of water, and be miserable for the rest of your life if you really want to follow my command. But the imperative is not go. The only command that Jesus makes of his followers in this verse is make disciples. That's it. The only thing Jesus is asking his followers to do is make disciples. Going is a participle of attendant circumstance. In other words, Jesus tells his disciples, in order to obey the command, you gotta get off the mountain. You gotta take a step of faith and trust. And for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means that Go says that we gotta get out of whatever place of comfort we might find ourselves in to be obedient to the real thing of making disciples. Baptizing and teaching these are participles of means. So instead of being the pressure-packed things that we feel like we need to do in order to obey Jesus, these are the things that when they start showing up, they're indicator lights for us that we're actually engaging in the real deal command that Jesus gives us. Baptizing and teaching, if we are making disciples today, looks like helping another person process through the decisions and the situations in their life in a way that allows Jesus' lordship to influence that decision so that they can really truly live out the great life that he wants for them. Discipling involves processing through life together as Jesus would want us to live life. And it involves teaching. You're going to explore who this great God is who offers this great life to us. You're going to learn more about him. You're going to grow and develop in that relationship. You're going to learn more about who you are and your identity as you discover who this God is. You're going to learn more about where this whole world is going. But again, these are not the commands. They show up when you're being obedient to the command. These are not the commands. They're just participles. The only thing Jesus is asking his followers to do is to make disciples. And so now when we bring back around the obedience list, we realize that this is a terrible set of glasses through which to view our relationship with God through Christ. You see, obedience is, has nothing to do 
with you thinking that Jesus demands that you pray more. Obedience has nothing to do with a perfect weekend service attendance record. Jesus isn't asking you to be perfect in your weekend service attendance. He's not commanding that you sell your Honda Accord because somehow walking to work in misery is more spiritual than not. Jesus never demanded that you memorize more scripture. Never did it. He doesn't demand a list of rules as though we work our way up to him loving us. He's already loved us at the cross. And while these things are good, they're not the command. These things are great things to tap into. They're not the command. The command that he gives us, the way he knows that we can tap into the great life that he wants for us is when we realize that we have this opportunity to invest ourselves in another person for the purposes of their spiritual growth and we come to know the great life and we also come to know that all of these good things lock into place when we make the main thing the main thing. Guys, I challenge you, and this, this has been the case with, uh, with my own disciple-making relationships. If I've, as I've looked at disciple people, man, guys, just, just watch what happens to your prayer life when you're keeping the main thing the main thing. When you're making disciples and focusing on another person's spiritual growth, watch what happens to your prayer life. Watch what happens to your Bible study when you make the main thing the main thing. Watch what happens as you start to process through all the resources that God has given you in your life and you see yourself no longer as an owner but a steward, man, that is not pressure. That's freedom. That all these things can lock into place and they are good things that God wants for us in our lives, but they lock in when we make the main thing the main thing. Jesus wants us to make disciples. Uh, so the band's going to come up at this point, and I just want to draw a couple conclusions with some of the things that we see here uh, for two specific audiences in particular. And the first audience is, uh, for those of you who don't claim to be a follower of Jesus, you're not a follower of Jesus, um, I would submit to you, I would just want to point you back to the authority part of our conversation that we had a few minutes ago. Listen, Jesus has procured the great life. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is the gateway into the great life that God always intended for you and for me. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you haven't come to this place yet, but I guarantee you, man, you're gonna come to the end of your rope. At some point, you're gonna come to the end of your rope. You're gonna try everything about doing life your way and autonomy and being your own God. And at the end of the day, it is going to leave you empty and hopeless. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you're, you're getting there or you're, you're resonating with this authority like that Jesus is the gateway into the life that God always intended for you, I would, I would plead with you, I would implore you as the band sings, as they play, as we sing together, all it is is just adopting or receiving the life that Jesus already offers to you by putting your trust in him, by just believing in him, by buying in like, Jesus, you're it. You're the gateway and I wanna follow your example, and your way of living life. That's all it takes. And then I would just please ask you, if you make that decision, if you make that commitment to be all in with Jesus, I would just ask you to pull out that connect card that you got in your program and just jot down a note and put it in the baskets that are passed at the end of the service just to let us know that you made that decision because, man, our campus, our church 
lives to resource you to grow in the life of Christ because we know and believe that it is the great life that God wants for you. And I would also submit to you that if you make that decision, let us know because we wanna get you plugged in with someone who's gonna disciple you, someone who's gonna pour into you to help you grow in this relationship that God offers to you in Jesus. So if you do that today, please just let us know. And then the second audience is, for those of you who call yourselves Christ followers, we claim to be Christ followers, I think the application is simple, although it's not specific. The application is for us to be challenged to make the main thing the main thing. And all these things can be added unto you, is what Jesus would say elsewhere. To keep the main thing the main thing, to focus our energies, the energies that God gives us, to pouring into the life of another person who needs to know the love of Christ in a deeper way and grow in the life that God wants for them desperately. That's our mission and that's our task. Now, if you don't know what to do with that, because that's fuzzy, that's big, that's high level, I would just encourage you, like there are times I don't even know how to do that. I'm struggling, I'm trying to figure it out, I'm trying to take one step in front of the other. And let me just tell you too that our leadership at our campus here Our pastors, our staff, even those who have been trained as volunteers, man, we live for this too. We live to resource and equip you on how to figure out how to do this. It's the reason why we will take time and energy to carve out new ministries like something that we call the bridge team. The bridge team is simply people who are trained to sit down with you to have a one-on-one conversation to help you address and allay your fears and your hesitations with regards to disciple-making, to, in effect, take you from where you are on one shore and, and build a bridge across that shore onto another so that you go from, I know that I should make disciples, all the way to, I'm doing it. I'm being obedient. I'm engaging in the freeing command of Jesus to make disciples. It's the reason why we create ministries like that. It's the reason why we have classes like disciple-making training. As a matter of fact, right now, session four of disciple-making training is happening back there in the one-on-one classroom. And we do this in a rotation. Man, if you don't know how to make disciples and you're looking for the first step, just fill out the Connect card. Let us know. I'm interested in disciple-making training. For that matter, fill out the Connect card. Just let us know. I don't know what to do. Help. For that matter, just write the words help on your Connect card. This is what we exist for. We exist to equip the saints, followers of Jesus, for the work of ministry to make disciples. And and lastly, if you're a parent in here, family is the first point of disciple making. Such that our team back in Power Kids today, uh, for you parents who are going to pick up your kids, they are going to hand you this fancy little box. And inside this box are just a bunch of resources where the Power Kids ministry just decided we are going to take the opportunity for the new school year to develop a new rhythm. And so in this box are just different tools and resources that are at your disposal, parents, to begin with the new school year, a rhythm of discipling your kids, intentionally carving out time to invest yourself for their spiritual growth. They're coming to know Jesus and living that kind of life. So if you pick this up and they give it to you, don't go home and throw it away. Open it up, check it out. Don't miss it. This is part of a way that we can keep the main thing, the main thing, to make disciples. And I love what Jesus says here at the very end of the passage. He doesn't leave us alone in this. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Guys, this is the reason why it's called the great co-mission and not the great solo mission. It's a collaborative mission. Jesus is with us and he's for us and he's given us the authority that we need to do this. Let's do it by his power and his presence. And the energy and the power that he gives us to do something we couldn't do without him comes because he gives us the Holy Spirit. That's that last leg of the GC3 that we're gonna talk about next week. But for today, as we sing and as we play, guys, wherever you're at, I wanna challenge you. Keep the main thing the main thing. Let's make disciples and be obedient to Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for your power. We're thankful for the new life that you brought through the sending of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we are thankful, Jesus, to you for being obedient to God's plan, to being obedient to death on a cross so that we might go free, taking the weight of sin and the penalty of sin on your back so that we might go free and live the kind of great life that the Father wants for us. So Jesus, as we reflect on your commands, help us to first think about the great thing you did to love us. And that because you loved us, we don't need to earn your love anymore. But we can live in the freedom of being equipped with the resources you have given us and with the commission that you've given us to pour our lives into other people in the same way that you poured out your life to death so that we might live in freedom. Jesus, give us the power. Give us, give us the mindset even as we worship together that we would do the appropriate business with you. God, And maybe that looks like asking you what the next step is. God, help us to take that step. We need you to guide us and lead us in these things. Because Jesus, there are many of us, myself included, we desire to be obedient to you. But sometimes we, we, we lack the boldness and the ability and the courage. But Jesus, you're with us. And you give us the power to do this where we couldn't do it ourselves. So God, help us figure out for us individually, each one of us, what the next step is in obedience to you. And we could discover the freedom of, the, of a great life that pours life into other people. God, thank you for the sacrifice of your son that makes this all possible. And we worship you and praise you as a result of it. In Jesus' name, amen.